0: I'm preaching this morning from the book of Ruth, and I probably need to help you find that little book. It's right after the book of Judges, so if you can find Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Two or three weeks ago, I began to preach on the home, and of course, when you're preaching on the home, most of the sermons are... Uh, directed to uh, parents, it has to do with parenting, that kind of thing. Some of the folks were giving me a hard time about preaching it too late for them, all their kids are gone. And uh, you know, as I was thinking or praying a couple of weeks ago, it just occurred to me that, that a sermon on the home, the, one of the most relevant things you could talk about, has to do when death comes. I imagine there are many folks here this morning, probably a great percentage of this co- uh, congregation, a greater percentage of this congregation probably today is single because of death than our than, than couples with children at home. It uh, just occurred to me. So I want to preach this morning on the subject when death invades the home. It's kind of one of those sermons, you want to, it's kind of a how-to kind of a thing It might be one that you'd want to make some notes uh, in your Bible or on a piece of paper so that you can use it some other time if you can't use it today. Um, The book of Ruth uh, is this little book in the Old Testament. I want to begin reading at verse 19, chapter 1. I may need just a tad more volume, Dwayne. He shakes his head. No, I can't have it. <laughs> what a guy we got up there, <laughs> helping me out. <laughs> he's trying to pay me back. I came in here this morning. We were doing a mic test, and I was just mouthing, you know, like test one. <laughs> and uh, he's just paying me back now. <laughs> he just paid me back, huh? <laughs> When did I lose control of this thing? (laughs) Verse 19. It seems uh, like a sermon on death just doesn't fit into the levity here that we've got started here. So they both went. That's uh, Naomi and Ruth, her daughter-in-law. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came about when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? Um, She'd been gone for a while, and she's come home. And they're all excited about seeing this old friend. Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For El Shaddai, the Almighty, has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and with her, and with her Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. I went out to see her and she lived in a little modest house. She was already 80 and more. And she had lost her husband a few months before. And so we sat in this house, I sat with this widow, and we um, talked about uh, the past. We looked at some pictures and memorabilia of her past and, and, and there was this wonderful optimism about her and the total absence of self-pity. And yet there was this underlying sorrow. For without her husband, there was something incomplete that she had never really overcome. And because death had come to take away part of her life, she had never really fully recovered. A widow of yesterday expressed the same kind, the same sense of loss and sorrow. Her name is Naomi and her story is found in the book of Ruth. With her husband Elimelech, they leave Judea because of the famine. Moving with her two sons, they go to the little country of Moab and take up residency. And there when the boys got old enough, they married local gals and settled down. And then unexpectedly, all three of the males died. It was a traumatic experience for Naomi, and she was bitter. She felt life had done her a bad deal. And so in order to pick up the pieces, she decided she would go back to her homeland, to Judea. And the intensity of her loss is, is felt in the fact that she wants to change her name from Naomi to Mara, which means bitter, because she felt that God had dealt bitterly with her. One of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, decided to go with her, chose to go back to her native land with her. And her... Um, her desire to marry a man named Boaz is one of the most beautiful love stories in all the Scripture. And so they eventually married Ruth and Boaz. And Ruth's whole life, the point around which her life revolved, was her new husband. But the event around which Naomi's life revolved was the loss of her husband and her desire and her need to to pick up the pieces and start again. Because death had invaded that home, everything was changed, everything was different. I want to talk to you this morning about what happens when death comes to the home. There is first of all its inevitability... I don't have to tell you this morning. just want to remind you of the inevitability of death. Now, when Naomi married her husband, she fully intended to live a long life and enjoy one another for, for a long time. And, and, and she fully intended to do that. And when you marry, there is so much vitality and excitement. Who thinks about dying, you know? And if you think about death, it's this remote possibility that happens to old people or to someone else, but never to us. We might as well face the fact this morning, the inevitable fact that Naomi faced, that is, the inevitability of death. And the Bible confirms the conclusion. The author of the book of Hebrews says, "...it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this comes judgment." The author of the book of Ecclesiastes reminds us that there is a time to give birth and there is a time to die. And the psalmist asks rhetorically, what man alive will not see death? From the very time that God said to the first couple in the Garden of Eden, if you eat of the fruit of this tree, you shall surely die. Death has been an inevitable part of the experience of life eventually each one of us will see death. Now I know that there is a conspiracy of silence that seeks to deny the reality of death. Jeffrey Gerber, an English psychologist, says that, that, the, that in contemporary culture the personal experience of death has replaced sex as the taboo subject. And he says, Death talk has replaced sex talk as the unmentionable. And a part of this silence is understandable. Like the Jew who had such respect for the awesomeness of God, he would never use the word Yahweh. So we have so much respect for the awesomeness of death that we don't like to bring the word to our lips. In the Chinese subculture, there is a superstition that is that says that if you mention certain evils, to mention certain evils is to welcome its presence. Don't speak of death. To speak of death is to welcome it. But if we, like King Louis XIV, refuse to have the word mentioned in our presence and never say the word death, we live in a dream world, like the couple I heard about, who refused to make a will because they didn't want to think about the possibility of ever needing one. A part of the reality of life is the experience of death. And sometimes we try to soften its blow with the use of euphemisms. A euphemism is a word I didn't learn in Knox County. A a euphemism is, is is a word or a phrase that, that, that you use to lessen the impact of something, the severity of something, the offensiveness of something. And so we speak of death in euphemisms. Euphemisms. We talk about a man, we, we say he's gone away. He's gone to be with the Lord. Uh, he's passed away. Or we say he's just asleep. But neither our silence nor our euphemism will change the fact that what happened to Naomi's husband is going to happen to you and to me and the people you're married to. I like what the man out in Arizona said when he was asked, what is the death rate here? He said, it's just like it is where you are. There's one for every one. And so Naomi married her husband and she walked with him in life and she expected to live a long life with him. And then one day he was gone. And she experienced not only the inevitability of death, she experienced its impact. The the death of her loved one had a tremendous impact upon her life. Experts say that the number one stress factor in, in life Is the death of a spouse. And so, after Vance Havner had lost his beloved Sarah, he said, To be sure, when the dearest on earth goes to heaven and leaves you to plod on along, there is no harder blow and there is no greater human bereavement. It was what Naomi experienced. And she said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It's worse for you. The death of my husband is worse than yours because God has stretched out His hand thrice to me. And the intensity of her grief is felt in those words when they said, and the people gathered around her and said, Is this Naomi? She said, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because God has dealt bitterly with me. And she experienced the bitterness of it She's in a sad way. She's in a tragic way. The entire story is punctuated with pulsations of passions. Oh, what an impact the death of a spouse has upon us. And I think some of us are kind of, you know, i can killed by the faces of some as a, I wonder who he's talking to. Talking to you. C.S. Lewis had buried his wife. This is what he said. He said, you know, I thought that the pain of death would be localized to certain places, certain times, certain days, but I have found that this death makes every part of every day different. Her absence, said C.S. Lewis, is like the sky. It stretches over everything. Death hurts. That's what C.S. Lewis was saying. That's what Naomi had experienced. And I don't really, I'm not sure that, that, that the, impact, the, the, the impact of death can, it, it, and its hurt is immediately discerned because I've sensed sometimes that, that the shock of death causes us to feel that we're stronger than we really are. One widow explained that phenomena like this. She said on the outside I look like I'm only bruised but on the inside my heart is broken. And sometimes it takes a, a little while for the death of that disruption the depth of that disruption of death to really be sensed its full impact to be known. Now death impacts us in four ways. It impacts us personally Death ushers in a status change, usually accompanied by an identity crisis, and we language is no longer appropriate. And that's strange, you see, because it is in this we ness, now not little, not that we ness, but it is in this we, W E hyphen N E S S, it is in we ness that our identity has been centered for years. I mean, I'm known as my wife's husband. I I get my identity and my status in that. And so do you. And all of a sudden, we-ness is inappropriate. And I have to struggle to find my own identity. And so death causes that. And we have to find what we're to do and what we're to be with the rest of our life. And that's difficult. And Naomi experienced that. And obviously, she she, she felt... That she had to go back to Judea to, to, to recover her identity. You, you notice they noticed, they knew her there. She had to go, she had to change in order to, to, to recapture what was left for her. And so she went back home. Death has a personal impact. Secondly, death has an emotional impact. Nothing stirs the emotions like death. And sometimes death dredges up feelings of guilt. And if only we becomes a very vital part of our language, our, our verbiage. If only we, if only we had done differently. If only we had provided this pleasure. If only we had expressed this emotion. If only we had done better and we feel bad that it, that it, that it wasn't better in the past. And so, if only becomes a part of our conversation. And we feel guilty, don't we? Now, the problem with living in a if only we world is that it locks you into the past. And we were never meant to live in the past. We were meant to live in the present. The only day we have really is today. And a person has never really recovered from the guilt experience From the death experience until he sees that the positive possibilities of the present are more important than the negative inadequacies of the past. Now, Naomi experienced this. I mean, she was a wreck when she got back to Judea, she was an emotional wreck. But if you read this story, and it's a fascinating one, you'll see that it wasn't long until she shifted the concentra- her concentration from the past to the present, from, a, from self to, to Ruth. And there's a marvelous development here in her grieving process. It has an emotional impact. It has a social impact. Now watch this. Our identity, our status... Is found in our we ness. And when somebody dies, you know, a spouse dies, our friends are there to comfort us and to be with us and to encourage us. But it isn't long. Have you noticed this? It isn't long until they return to the normal routine that is couple oriented. And we're, and we're three is a crowd, and we're left alone. Now one of the most amazing things that I've discovered in the ministry uh, in my ministry is this fear of isolation that comes in the dying process. I mean we put people in these ICU wards, you know, and 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 we don't want to die alone. My father died 11 years ago. He'd been in the hospital. His only request was that he could die at home. We don't want to die alone in unfamiliar surroundings. We fear isolation. But let me tell you something. There's a great fear of isolation on the part of those who survive. And all of a sudden, where they have been moving about in the social stratus that is completely couple-oriented, all of a sudden, they're thrust out into a world alone. And this social impact is felt. And there's a spiritual impact. It isn't long until you start asking questions like, Why me? Why here? Why this way? Why has God dealt so tragically with me? Why now? Why God? Is there a God? Where is He? Now, I've heard people say, you know, when death comes... um, I never question God, it's His will. Now that's admirable, but I don't know very many people who have, who have gone too far in the dying process that didn't have some questions of God. I mean, Naomi did. Why has God dealt bitterly with me? Job did, sitting on the ash heap, scraping his boils. He wanted to know from God, why this? But I think it's essential that we understand and recognize that these people went to God with their questions and not from Him because it is only in God that you find answers. Charles Spurgeon said, God is too good to be unkind. He's too wise to be mistaken. If you can't trace His hand, you can trust His heart. She felt the impact of death. But what are the implications of death? I had a lady die one day while I was preaching, died in my sermon. Uh, I told that story one time. A kid asked me, would well, she get old? You know, it was so long. Did she just get old and die of old? I, I did. I was, I was up preaching one morning. A lady uh, had a seizure and died. Every 15 seconds, someone dies in the United States. What are we to do about this? Now, what? Now, now hear me well. I, I hope that you're getting something help from this. Uh, What are we? What are the implications of death? What? How should we deal with this, this matter that happens to us every day, fifteen sec, every fifteen seconds, someone is touched by death. Well, there are several implications. One is the necessity of mourning. The necessity of grief. Someone has said that grief, mourning, is what we do to enable our emotions to catch up with what's really happened to us. But when somebody dies, the very first thing we say is, don't cry. I mean, don't don't weep. Be, be strong, you know. Don't, don't take it so hard. We, we try to get them not to weep. There's a marvelous little book out. I've read it. Can't even think of the title right now. It just popped in my mind. It has to do with teaching children to, 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 to face the reality uh, of, of the dying process. And, and one of the things it says in there is, is that we, 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 we tell children, you've got to be strong, you know. You, you can't, don't, don't cry. But unless that, unless that grief is worked out in a healthy way, it's internalized in an unhealthy way and has tremendous impact both on your life and on the lives of others. And so Jesus came to Bethany and He found these mourning, grieving sisters. He didn't scold them. He didn't belittle them. He shared their sorrow with them. He felt it with them. He even let them talk about it. And He even cried. The necessity of grief. Second thing, We need to support the mourning, the grieving. We need that ministry. We need to stand by them when they experience these acute symptoms of grief. Now someone has suggested that there are five symptoms of acute grief if you're going to minister to the grieve, minister to the grieving, you need to understand these five symptoms of acute grief. One is somatic distress, like sighing and fatigue. Second is a preoccupation with the image of the deceased. I see him everywhere. I, I, I talk to him. The third is an inordinate guilt that we, they carry around in their heart, in their breast. Fourth is hostility to those around them. And filth is the loss of the common patterns of conduct. Minister to the grieving. Third implication. Remember to involve them in life. Now, I've never... Um, lost an immediate, a member of my immediate family, a wife or a child, of course. But I have a feeling, after having known um, people who have experienced grief and death, that what we want to do is, is run, is to, to withdraw. I heard about this boy who got in this, had this confrontation with his mother And with his gentle nudge, he encouraged her back into life and helped her to see that what she really was doing in her withdrawal from society was was the fact that she feared the return to society. Involved them. The final is to remember the answer for death. A family went down into the bottom of the Carlsbad Cavern. Some of you have been there. And in the bottom of the Carlsbad Cavern, they turn out the lights, and it's total total darkness. And this little this family had had a small daughter and an older son, and the little girl got frightened and began to whimper. And her brother said, "Don't don't don't be afraid. There's somebody who knows how to turn on the lights." Um, don't don't be afraid. When death invades the home, there's somebody who knows how to turn on the lights. And I suppose that the greatest sermon on death was preached by an ignorant, almost illiterate black preacher, by the name of Samuel Johnson. And this is his conversation, or a part of it, concerning. The grave, he says, Grave, grave, oh grave, where is your victory? I heard you got a mighty banner down there, and you terrorize everybody what comes along this way. Bring out your armies and furl forth your banners of victory. Show your hand and let him see what you can do. And then the grave answers, He ain't got no victory had victory, but King Jesus passed through this country and tore my banners down. He says His people shan't be troubled no more forever and He'd tell me to open the gates and let them pass on their way to glory. Oh my God, did you hear that? My Master Jesus done jerked the sting of death, done broke the scepter of the King of Terrors and He done gone into the grave and robbed it of its victorious banners and fixed nice and smooth for His people to pass through. More even that, He has written a song, a shouting anthem for us to sing when we go through passing suns and stars and singing that song, thanks be unto God, unto God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's somebody who knows how to turn on the lights. And my heart can sing when I pause to remember that a heartache here is just a step in stone along a trail that is winding all ways upward. This troubled world is not my final home. This weary world, with all its toil and struggle, may take its toll of misery and strife. The soul of man is like a waiting falcon when it's released, it's destined for the skies. But until then... My heart will go on singing until then with joy I'll carry on until my eyes behold the city until the day God calls me home. There's somebody who knows how to turn on the light. A lady came into my office this story and I'm through. And and I had met this woman. She had married uh, a guy in our community. She was a divorcee, and he a divorced man. And the first time I met her was at a Sunday school vacation Bible, a vacation Bible school commencement time. And I, I, honest to God, true, true story, when I met that woman, I thought in my heart, my spirit, that one day I would lead her to faith in Christ. She had a kind of a, 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 a weird kind of a look about her. She, she came into my office about two months after that and sat down and across my desk she said, can you teach me how not to be afraid of death? And she told me her story. She said she lived with an abusive cruel husband and one night he got drunk and put a pistol in her, between her eyes and kept her hostage for hours, and then finally pulled the trigger. And the, and the bullet entered her head above here. And she said, I remember when the, when the gun went off, she said, I remember swirling into darkness. And the next thing I remember, I was in an intensive care unit. And she survived, physically. And she said, I live in total terror of death. And I read that passage from Hebrews that says that King Jesus conquered death in order that we might never fear death. And introduced her to Christ. It's what I'd like to do for you today. I'd like to help you to know the one who has defeated death so that when death comes, which inevitably will, with its impact upon our lives in every way, we can say with the the Apostle Paul, I am persuaded that nothing shall separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Have you ever given your heart and life to Him? He's the only one who can turn on the lights. Let's pray together. Father, in the solemnity of this moment, We bow before you, affirming that you are Lord because you have conquered man's last enemy, which is death. I pray this morning for those who first, who have never known Jesus Christ, who have never experienced salvation, who are not ready to see death. That in this solemn moment, in a positive way, they might come to claim Jesus Christ and His life, His salvation from sin. By simple faith, trust Him. And I pray this morning for those of us who are having a hard time dealing with the death of a loved one. Help us to look to You, Father, to turn our eyes from the past to the possibilities of this moment to the Lord who brings light to our darkness. And I pray for public decision this morning, if that is your desire, and your will, for each of us, in Jesus' name I pray. Now would you look here, there are three invitations this morning. The first invitation is for you to come, giving your heart and life to Jesus Christ. He said to receive eternal life, life that's qualitative in that it comes from God, and qualitative in that it never ceases to be. By faith in Jesus Christ, you will live forever. Come this morning committing your life to Him in a new and deeper way. Come this morning to join His church. Follow with us, King Jesus, the triumphant King over life and death. We'll give you an opportunity to do that. It'll just be a brief invitation. If you're coming, you need to come right away while we stand, while we sing.